Hello, and welcome to 404 Podcast Found. I'm your host, Owen Godmer. This episode is brought to you by Coveros Training, offering expert training in Agile, DevOps, testing, and more. We'll have more on that later. For now, let's jump into the episode. Max Saperstone is the Director of Test and Automation at Coveros. At Coveros, Max works with organizations to determine how best to test their application across the organization to ensure high quality and low risk releases. I sat down with Max and talked about codeless automation, using ROI to drive test automation decisions and why manual testing is here to stay. Codeless automation is really the idea of, well, exactly what it sounds like. It is actually doing automation without any sort of code. Um, and so the fact is, if you're going to be writing automated tests, um, you know, one of the big things I preach is when you write an automated test, they're code. And so they have to be treated as code, which means following good coding standards, keeping, the, uh, like keeping them in um, source control, uh, making sure you go through code reviews, hopefully writing unit tests around um, parts that make sense, uh, integration tests, et cetera. Um, and that is a lot of work. And it's um, a change from what most QAs are used to. They're used to doing a lot of manual testing. Um, and so there's the um, this large uh, proponent for, well, how can we get more QAs involved in this automated process? And the thought is, well, what if they didn't actually have to write code? Um, so there's this idea of you can kind of do a drag and drop or you can use other UI tools in order to actually build your automated tests. So it's kind of taking this record and playback, but to a much other step, uh, a much uh, greater step. Um, in the sense of not only can I record and playback, but then I can reuse the components, I can build my own tests from those, et cetera. Um, with the idea of, again, just trying to make it simple and make automation a lot more uh, accessible to a lot more people. Right, so you make it more accessible uh, by removing that coding element from it, but there's still yeah. code at some level. Oh, sure, it's just that the code is removed away from anyone who has to see it. Um, I mean, you sat through, we did a little bit with Selenium IDE, mm -hmm. and you saw that you were able to record all of your actions and write a test, and you didn't have to actually write any code. But if you wanted, you could go in and you could have messed around with all those steps and everything else. Um, and it's kind of like that, but in a much more complex system. And there's a bunch of different tools that are out there um, that allow you to essentially build your own automated test without having to write any code and without any knowledge. And some of them even say, and if you want, you can go under the hood and start tweaking, changing the code, kind of writing whatever it is that you actually want. Yeah, that's awesome. So what, uh, do you see any new challenges coming about with this codeless automation, people who, are now going to be doing uh, automation through maybe a, a drag and drop or a, a mm -hmm. click and record. That them not noting, knowing code is going to be uh, an obstacle for them, even with codeless automation. So I, I don't know about any new um, obstacles, but I, I do think that they're facing the exact same things that the prior tools introduced. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a few things I think have, have been fixed. Um, it, I've definitely seen things being a little bit more maintainable and the reliability going up a bit. Um, but, but overall, a lot of the same problems exist, which is you still need some sort of um, smart way of writing your tests. Um, and the problem, again, with, with automation is that a lot of people just take their manual tests and they simply convert those into automated tests. That just doesn't work. Um, because, well, as a manual tester, you know, I'm looking at a thousand different things, even though I'm just running my one test case. And your automated test only knows to check exactly what you tell it. Um, and there, there are a lot of ways that you can kind of get around that and do other things, but they don't come directly from the test. So you need to know a little bit more when you're actually writing that, when you're actually doing it. Um, 
And so, you know, again, I think it solves some of the problems, and I don't think it necessarily opens anything up, up for um, not knowing code. But at the same point, uh, at the same time, you have issues of, well, you're, you're, you're also tied to that tool. Like if at any point you say you don't like it, all of your tests are kind of stuck in there. And that's not a new thing. If I've written a whole bunch of Selenium IDE scripts, and then I decide I don't want to use Selenium IDE anymore, I'm kind of stuck there. Same thing with, uh, with UFT or any other tools out there. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a, a new challenge, but it is definitely something else that you want to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely, and this is something that we've talked about too. And you mentioned um, converting, like directly converting manual tests to automated tests. And we've mm -hmm. talked about how that isn't obviously the practice we want to be following. Right. When people start down the automation track, or people who maybe are already in it, mm -hmm. what should we be automating? Yeah. Um, so that's actually a a great question, um, and I don't have a silver bullet answer. Right. But really, the question is um, that I always like to look for is like looking at your ROI. Like when you start doing automation, it's well, why do you want to do that? Because we need to speed up the testing process. Okay, great. What's slow about the testing process? And typically it's, oh, well, we have to go through X or Y or Z. And a lot of times what I hear is well, we go through this one thing 50 times. Um, so take, for example, I'm filling out a form and I want to make sure that it works with every single state. Uh, that is a very tedious, miserable thing to do because I have to fill it out 50 times each and every time select another state. It gets even worse when you start throwing in territories and other things. I think the last project I was on, they had like 57 different, different workflows through that. Um, and so one of the first things that we did was we automated filling out those forms. And we didn't actually check every single page on there. What we did is we just wanted to make sure that the workflow was the correct workflow when we got to the end. And then someone still went through once manually on a single state to make sure that everything actually looked properly and the usability was there. But then they could just go through it once because, uh, and there was a slight risk, but we made the, uh, our kind of a risk assessment was, um, if manually it works on one state and the workflow works on all the states, we're not worried about something being off um, on you know one of those random states because again, we recognize it's going through the same pages. It's literally just sending different data. And we just want to make sure that the data kind of can be sent. Um, and so that you know that can spe speed up a, a lot. And it's just you know adding re right, really writing one test and just saying loop through it 50 different times with these different inputs. And stuff like that can really save a lot of time when you identify what are those very repetitive mind-numbing things to go after. Um, other big things that you want to look at are things that are highly data driven because uh, those are very prone to, uh, to human error. So I don't know if I've told you this story, but how I actually got into doing automated testing is my, uh, I guess this was my second, I think it was my second job, uh, I was doing software testing and the output of this uh, file was uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of binary data. So literally just pages and pages of ones and zeros that we were supposed to look through and make sure that it was the correct data. And we would and we would find errors and there would be probably plenty of errors that got past us because that was a miserable, impossible task. You're doing for it us all by do. hand. By hand, absolutely. Wow. Uh, we had, you know, what, what the correct output was, and so uh, some people got creative. They printed out sheets. Um, they'd print stuff out on transparent sheets, almost to lay over what they would need to. Um, and then some people would do kind of like in Word, they do like a highlight and a find and replace to make sure they all match up. But either way, it was a painful process. Um, and so that was actually my first. Uh, entry into uh, we need to come up with some better way and so we happen to have Perl available on the system um, so I started writing some scripts which literally just ran the program took all the output and compared it to uh, whatever it was um, again because it was a slow painful process and really why not do something like that 
Um, and so re really anything that you can think of that you find a, you know, something that's very tedious, something that's, or something that's very error prone, again, with a lot of data is usually very ripe for automation because it's usually fairly easy because you're not looking at UI you're necessarily. You're not looking at anything else. You're just making sure is the correct output that I care about. If you care about all the steps along the way, you want to be a lot more careful about your automation, and most likely then you want to start falling into some of the other strategies you know, that we talked about of breaking down your one, your one test into 20 or 30 or 50 automated tests and looking at different things, et cetera. Yeah, when you, you have that automation, you, you, know, you start to get that automation in place, you're not, your goal isn't necessarily to automate everything, right? right. Y you're still going to do manual testing. Exactly. The goal is, um, and, 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 and I hear this unfortunately from a lot of execs, is, oh, well, we're going to replace all manual testing. And, Sure, that's a great thought, but it's not something that happens. I mean, even places uh, like Amazon and Etsy, who claim they have no manual testers, um, and I'll, I'll take a, uh, an excerpt from, uh, from Jeff Payne, my boss, uh, your, your boss as well, um, and he likes to say that they do, in fact, have testers. Their testers, however, are the end users, and the end users find all the issues, and they then send them back. I mean, and there is manual testing being done, whether you do it internally or not. Um, and so that really is, isn't, and I don't think it should be the goal. You may end up with you don't need to do as much, excuse me, you don't need to do as much manual testing, that's what you want. Um, but sometimes in several organizations that I've been in, what we found is manual testers do just as much. They're simply focused in other areas and they're able to get to different areas that they weren't able to test at before because automation is taking some of the workload off of them. Uh, because honestly, every single time you know, you're ready to release. I've never once heard a tester say, great, I'm satisfied, I've checked absolutely everything in the app and I know we're bug-free, let's go ship. It's, well, here are the errors I tested, here are the risk areas, and here are the ones I haven't even touched, so uh, good luck. And if you can uh, let testers use their time more effectively, then that's great, and that really should be what you're driving at for automation. And then, sure, build it up so you need less and less manual testing over time, but uh, I'm not a proponent of 100% automation fire all the testers. That's I don't believe that's a reasonable thing, quite honestly. Right, and uh, with the back to the Amazon example, you're talking about their testers being the end users. Amazon is taking that, they've done their risk analysis and said, mm -hmm. we're going to risk putting the manual testing in the hands of our customers, yeah. knowing that if something goes wrong, we don't think that they are going to stop using us, they're mm -hmm. going to let us know and we'll be able to make the changes. Right, Well, and, and so using someone like, so rather than uh, Amazon, but using someone like Netflix, for example, I think they have like a 17 minute from code check-in to release. Um, in their cycle, um, which means that if their end users find an issue, great, it only takes them 17 minutes to, once they fix the issue, to actually push it out. So that's a very low risk. Uh, but you're right, and their, their, their software is, you know, uh, I guess imperative enough that users are going to continue to use it anyways. But right, their risk assessment is, who cares? Like our testers, manual testing would take a lot longer than that, so why not just let it get fixed uh, elsewhere? Uh, which really kind of brings in this whole idea of, uh, how DevOps really needs to fit into your whole testing cycle. Um, because if you can have a great process to release software, uh, while it doesn't necessarily mitigate the risk of introducing bugs, it does mitigate the risk of how difficult it is to actually fix them. Because um, you don't need to necessarily worry about hot fixes, you can just push everything through your actual pipe, and there's no way to do that without a lot of good automation in place. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit more. Automate, obviously, the DevOps are talking about continuous integration, continuous delivery, however you want mm -hmm. to kind of look at that, and continuous testing is a big part of that. Yeah, well, continuous testing is is that. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, the term popped up, I think, about two years ago or so. Um, and, you know, for, for a long time, I was talking about how the term is BS and whatnot. And, and, and I, part of me still thinks it is, but really, it's a, it's a marketing thing. It, it really is about that testing is, in fact, important. Let's make sure that we remember to include it. Um, for most testers, I don't think it's really a 
a new concept. It's you know this idea of let's test as soon as we can and let's test as long as we can. Um, but really, it's what makes the whole DevOps process successful. Because other, otherwise, all you're doing is you're taking software in whatever state it is, and you're shoving it out to your clients as fast as possible. Whereas what you really want is you want to take the software and shove it out to your clients as fast as possible with as much quality statistics mm -hmm. as, you know, as you can gather, and hopefully that quality is high. Um, but at least you know if it's not that you can say, yes, I'm going to release, or no, I'm not. Um, and so the, the thought about it isn't necessarily to, um, to make sure that it's bug-free, but at least to get a much better risk analysis of it so that you can say, hey, I know I'm releasing it with these issues, but I don't care. So the, at least someone at the end can say yay or nay instead of just I hope it works. Right, and it, it's about putting that uh, in the hands of the people who can make those decisions. As testers, you don't necessarily get to make those decisions exactly. as part of the team. I mean, as a part of the team, maybe you have some say in it, but ultimately you're supposed to help illuminate the issues that you find and the mm -hmm. risks that you see and, and maybe provide some analysis around that. Yeah. Like, hey, we think these are high risk or low risk based on what we think customers might get out of it. Yeah, it, it, well, exactly. And that goes to this concept of whole team quality. Um, you know, it traditionally has always been thought of that QA owns quality, which is a ridiculous sentiment because mm -hmm. QA is not creating the bugs, they're not introducing them. And honestly, you know, I used to like to say, oh, well, I like being QA because I like to break software. And, and even that's not true. Like, I'm not breaking the software. I'm, software is already broken. I'm simply pointed out where the actual points are. And this idea of whole team quality is really the fact that yes, um, I am in there and I'm identifying the issues that exist, uh, but the developers should be doing the same thing. Um, and ultimately then what we're doing is we're gathering up all this analysis, we're handing it over to someone else, and we're going to say, do you want to release the software or do you want people to go back and fix it? Because um, ultimately that's what you really want for you know, a successful process, and that's what the, this whole DevOps um, pipeline is really supposed to be highlighting. It's this continuous feedback. Um, which is at any point, I know the exact state of the system and I can do whatever I want with it. It's no longer you know, necessarily just a release manager going, hey, I hope everything's gotten tested. It's I, great from the dev perspective, from the QA perspective, from the securities perspective, et cetera. I know all of this entire risk assessment and then I can do whatever I want with it. Right, yeah, and, and I think that even when you do that, there's going to be things that you can't necessarily test. Oh, sure. Of course, you know, you're not going to ever be able to test everything, depend unless your application is like the most simple application in the world. That's probably never going to happen. Um, but like you said, if you're able to kind of provide that risk assessment mm -hmm. and your whole team is kind of behind the the acceptance of that uh, of that risk assessment, say, yeah, we've all these are the things we've done. These are the things that we agree mm -hmm. are problems or could potentially be problem areas. I think that's super important. One thing you mentioned is the whole team quality and the developers playing a role in that. The, mm -hmm. the people who are actually putting the code into the system. Yeah. How important is it as you're moving through the DevOps, uh, the, the, your DevOps journey, and as you're getting through continuous testing and, and more and more automation, how important is it that the developers really have a mindset in the quality space? Um, so, so, so phrasing that way is interesting. I mean, I, I think that it's really important for developers to have a mindset in the quality space. That said, I think it's something that you don't see quite that often. I think that there are a lot of developers who really care about doing unit testing and really care about their code coverage. Um, but I, I honestly believe that, um, that your QAs think a little bit differently. Um, and that's one of the reasons that you, you have that separation of responsibilities is uh, the developers, as far as they're concerned, um, their mentality is let's make sure that it works the right way, whereas the QA's mentality is let's make sure it doesn't work the wrong way. Um, and you know, I think if devs were really thinking in that sense, it would be great, but I think it might also hamper some of their ability to really produce um, the right you know, the right software the right way. Right, um, and 
probably uh, to that to that point potentially inhibits their creative creativity and their mm-hmm. ability to maybe take some risks uh, in their manipulation of the code in a way that they think the user might be able to use it or, or things that they can do that'll help them uh, kind of maintain code long term. So I think that that's a very mm-hmm. you know a, a very interesting point uh, about kind of that different dynamic that someone who is maybe a traditional QA person has mm-hmm. from a traditional coder. Yeah, and, and, and but but again, I, um, back to your I guess initial question is I do think it's really important that there's some sort of a quality mindset going on pretty much with everybody, uh, right? Just this idea of everyone actually needs to be involved. Um, and, I, and I don't just think it's necessarily important for the quality of the product, but it's also I think really important for the whole team. Um, happiness and for the company culture. I mean, one of the things um, that I've seen in some of the other, uh, in some environments that I've worked in, is there's uh, a lot of blame going on, which is, well, the software didn't, uh, we found this bug, QA, why didn't you catch it? Well, sure, QA missed it. Or why did the developers introduce it? But if this, there's this idea of whole team quality, it's no longer f- finger pointing and blame. It's as a team, we missed this. Um, let's figure out how we can address the problems. It's do we need to change our development practices or QA practices or figure out how, you know, how this actually got by. Uh, but it's no longer this kind of painful place to be in. It's much more uh, generative, <coughs> um, uh, which is, again, I think a really important thing and it can only really come about when you have this view of whole, uh, whole team quality as opposed to just saying, hey, you guys are responsible for quality, so if there's a problem, it's your fault as opposed to anyone else in the organization. Right. You mentioned uh, generative culture, and you know you have the, uh, I forget who the, the uh, author, Westrom, Westrom uh, yeah, yeah. he has the pathological, the bureaucratic, and the generative culture, yep. pathological being that kind of that fear culture where uh, people are placing blame all mm-hmm. the time. Bureaucratic, more of like red tape, kind of getting in your way from being able to get stuff done in the generative where the whole team kind of working together yep, exactly. with that idea of they wanted to create good software. Mm-hmm. And, and Westrom, I don't think it was specifically to uh, software when he- No, 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 no I don't believe so. I think it's just talking about in company culture company in general. Company culture yeah. in general. So when you have someone that's maybe working in a pathological situation, mm. you mentioned you've been in an environment where there's this blame game. Yeah. What are some steps you can kind of take to get from that pathological to, I mean, ultimately you want to get all the way to generative? Uh, I mean, so that's so that's a, a great question, um, and that's I think it really again it depends on the company culture. I mean, it's not something that you can just go in and snap your finger and say, "Hey, guys, we're now a, we're now a generative culture. We're no longer going to blame everybody." Um, and it's really something that has to come both from the management um, and from the employees, um, because I've, again, I've been in places where they have absolutely great employees. They love um, interacting with each other. Um, and I think that um, that's absolutely important, but if you don't have that support coming down from management, if management's always playing the blame game, that's not gonna help. At the same time, if you, don't, if you always have management kind of supporting everybody, but you have kind of teams that really just work um, in their own silos, you're gonna have that same issue. So I think you really need to be looking at both things. From an employee perspective, I think one of the biggest things you can do is uh, try and coordinate, try and communicate um, as much as you can with Um, pretty much everyone around you. So from a QA perspective, to me what that means is if there's an issue um, that I encounter, the first thing that I'm gonna do isn't gonna be to open a ticket. Uh, The first thing that I might go do is go sit over by a dev and say, hey, I found this. Um, is Is this actually an issue? Is it not? Because what happens is it puts a face to it. It's not just that I'm throwing something back at the dev saying, hey, this doesn't work. This is a pile of garbage. It's actually a um, you know, let's let's talk about it a little bit, um, and there there's a lot of back and forth, um, which really helps. 
from a management perspective, I want to probably be doing the same thing. I want to be, a, a big thing that you see in a lot of these uh, pathological um, cultures is people don't like saying um, voice and when there's problems, they kind of get buried or they come up. Um, but be as vocal as you can um, to as many people um, as you can. Um, especially if you don't see it being flowed up. If there's a problem, tell your manager immediately. Don't say, well, and if he's gonna, if you're gonna get in trouble for it, great. Like actually have that happen right then because it's better than sweeping it under the rug and then having it come out later because most likely you're just gonna be thrown under the bus later. Um, and if that's not getting flowed up, if you hear management say something, I would, you know, personally, it's a very difficult and uncomfortable position to be in, but, you know, say something. Say, actually, we talked about this. And don't say, I told so-and-so, and he clearly he didn't flow it up. Say, oh, actually, the whole team was discussing this. That's going to be a problem. Um, just to try and make sure that there are none of these surprises. And hopefully what that can do is it can foster a lot more trust, which can get you out of that rut of a lot of finger points and a lot of blame and a lot of kind of almost these fear-based uh, decisions going on. Yeah, and um, uh, trust is such an important part of getting to yeah. that generative culture. Is you can't be generative unless the team trusts the team, the team trusts the leadership, and the leadership trusts the team. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's not a, it's, I mean, what I just described is not simple at all. Mm -hmm. Like it's a painful thing that may take years, quite honestly, to get there and may never even pan out because you may just literally be in a culture where no one else wants to do that and management doesn't, doesn't like that or see the value, which is unfortunate. But um, I, I, again, I really do think that's kind of the the best path going forward, and I've seen that work relatively well, um, at least um, in you know uh, in, in parts of that. I, I've definitely seen a lot of um, dev and QA groups get a lot closer, and I've seen even their quality uh, improve just from having a lot of those discussions. Because what it stopped is a lot of those bouncing back and forth. Is nope, it's working fine. No, it's not. Um, you know, kind of thinking that you're picking on uh, one person or the other. Yeah, and it helps uh, create a better understanding. There's less miscommunication. Uh, mm -hmm. And it comes back to that agile principle about face-to-face -face communication. Like oh, yeah. you, you mentioned going over and actually sitting with the dev and having mm -hmm. that conversation. Being able to explain things in that way are much, uh, one, maybe a much nicer way than putting a ticket and almost opening the tickets like they got it wrong. Yeah, well, it's almost that and, and I'm not saying don't open the ticket. Right. But the idea is if you have the conversation first, because otherwise, again, and, and I've seen this happen, you open a ticket, dev say could not reproduce. You then send back a video and it says, oh, well, I don't see that on, you know, I don't see that on my machine or I don't see this over here right. or that's never a use case we'd run into. And so what you have is this really painful back and forth all through Jira or all through some sort of tool. Um, and then next time you see that person, all you think is, man, that guy's really um, uh, a kind of a jerk. Like, and you, you have this sort of animosity towards him just because that was your whole exchange. Whereas if you go over, sit down, actually have a communication, that really shouldn't be the case. Right, and um, you might be able to uh, also kind of nip the problem in the bud much qu more quickly because mm -hmm. maybe it is, oh, you know, I know exactly what the problem is and they can go and maybe, maybe it's a, a quick right. four second code change. Exactly, they can put it in there or, or even better, I've seen developers who then call me back over and say, hey, remember how we were looking at this before? Do you think this is gonna fix it or is this what we're going for? So instead of it being kicked out to QA and then I get to assess it, I can see it right there on the devs machine. Which yeah, is, absolutely. Which is great. And it's all about, again, it's that communication is building the relationships. Yeah, and it builds our relationships and helps break down those silos that mm -hmm. um, despite the what the efforts of Agile and DevOps were attempting to do, still there are teams that are not working in a way where mm -hmm. they're not throwing stuff over the wall. Well, sure. Well, and, and, and again, you don't even, I mean, you can do this in Agile or not. I mean, you know, really any, uh, I'd say anytime you're doing any sort of development, the more relationships you can, relationships you can build with uh, different teams, the better. As promised, here is some more about Covero's training. With Covero's training, you learn what you need, no matter where you and your team are with online instructor-led live virtual learning. Visit training.coveros.com 
to see upcoming classes in Agile, DevOps, test automation, and more. Plus, explore our volume discounts for groups and our private scheduling options. Coveros Training, learning delivered. We'd love to continue this conversation and more on the TechWell Hub. You can join our Slack community at hub.techwell.com. And remember to check out techwell.com to learn about our expert training, conferences, and communities for software professionals.